0: Though there will be some of the things I shall say about the key to the book of Micah which we did in fact say last week, um, there will be quite a lot of um, fresh material that I want to um, tell you about this evening. I'm not going to go therefore back over the um, introduction or the authorship and date of the book of Micah or indeed um, over the question of the background of the prophet. The key to the book of uh, Micah is the pardoning grace of God. And when that is seen, when, when the book of Micah is seen in that light, it becomes a truly sublime book. If it's looked at simply from the angle of judgment, it has very dark tones, very dark colours. But when it's looked at from the point of view of grace, it becomes simply wonderful. It is, in fact, one of the loveliest of the minor prophets. Although we, in fact, reach tremendous heights long before we come to the end of the little book of Micah, for instance, in chapter 4 and in chapter 5, We have got to heights of revelation as great as in any of the other prophets, including Isaiah. It is, in fact, within the closing verses of this little book that Micah's message is most clearly seen. The very last verses, particularly from verse 18 onwards. And it is surely no coincidence That Micah's name tallies with his last great cry of worshipping wonder. Who, he says at the end, is a God like unto thee who pardoneth iniquity? Um, As you know from last week, Micah was, was rather fond, from what we can gather, of playing on words. And this is one of the instances in the book where he seems to play upon his own name, which means, who is like the Lord? And his last great cry, who is like unto unto our God who pardoneth uh, iniquities. And then again, it's also very noteworthy that the opening words of Micah's prophecy are in fact the closing words of the um of one of his own namesake many centuries previous his opening words in chapter one and verse two are these hear ye peoples all of you and it's quite distinctive it's quite distinctive hear ye peoples all of you and if you look back in your bibles to two kings Two Kings and um, Chapter Twenty Two and Verse um, Twenty Eight. No, I must. I think I must mean One Kings Twenty Two. I'm sorry. One Kings Twenty Two. One Kings uh, Twenty Two and verse 28, you will find that the last recorded words in the scripture of Micah, which is only another form of the name Micah, were these, and he said, hear ye peoples, all of you. It's quite remarkable that the opening words of Micah should be the closing words of a former uh, Micah. Quite remarkable, and I don't think it's just simply coincidence, because, you see, the former prophet's ministry, as recorded in Kings, consists solely of stern judgment. Now, as it were, Micah, the later Micah, takes up the cry of the former, where he finished And without in any way lessening the terrible nature of sin or um, lessening in any way the necessary judgment that must always come upon sin or transgression, this Micah, the latter Micah, declares the almost unbelievable nature of God's grace. That's the point. It's as if he he takes what the other prophet says on a few steps further and unfolds to us something that the other prophet, as far as as is recorded in scripture, never said. And that is that judgment is only after all the, the background of God's grace. The backdrop, if you like. Upon which God displays His real character uh, and His uh, um, His real nature. Um, I don't think, therefore, that we can uh, just dismiss this uh, the rather remarkable uh, way in which Micah does uh, take up that um, former prophet's uh, ministry, especially those closing words. And then again. Um, M- Micah so declares to us the grace of God. So declares to us the grace of God, without in any way, without in any way compromising or watering down uh, the necessity of judgment, and and the purifying work that God does in judgment. He so declares work, he, um, the grace of God that in the end he himself is overwhelmed. This cry, you know, is not given for dramatic effect. It was evidently something that quite spontaneously burst out of the prophet. He is himself completely overwhelmed by his own message. That's a very blessed place to be, I'm sure. To be so taken uh, taken up by the Spirit, to be so carried away by the Spirit, that he becomes so completely overwhelmed with what he's got to say that in the end, He's almost exhausted by wonder. And all he can cry out in the finish, is that a great peon of praise and worship at the end of the book, is, who is a God like unto thee? Oh, he's been faithful. He's not watered down anything. He's not tried to, to sort of cover things up or tone down uh, things. You know, that's our trouble with most of us. If we, if we sort of put a, an accent on love, we tone down on... Uh, generally on truth and if we have an accent on truth we tone very much down upon love but here you have one who not only presents truth as it is truth as it really must be presented but he also draws out the unbelievable nature of God's loving kindness and grace in such a way that the prophet himself in the end uh, is 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 overwhelmed, and no wonder. There's no no wonder about it. And I think we ought also to note that the very abruptness of Micah's style, his um, the way he he um, rapidly moves from one subject to another without seemingly any connection, without any link. Um, His style, the abruptness of his style, lends itself to such a presentation of the grace of God. Uh, This is a most wonderful um, study in itself, really, in the way that God takes up men with their own temperament and disposition and styles and um, somehow causes his truth to be conveyed through them as it could only be conveyed through them. And here we have a remarkable instance of a man whose very style and temperament and disposition lend itself, lends itself to um, expressing to us, revealing to us, the nature of God's love and of God's grace in particular. Because we've, we ought to mark this, there is no connection whatsoever, seemingly, between chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Micah and chapters 4 and 5. If you look in and and dig a little bit more deeply, you will discover there is a little bit more of a connection. But seemingly, the very abruptness with which, first of all, Micah speaks of the judgment to come and his last words in that section and the last verse verse 12 of chapter 3 of this, Therefore, Because of you, Zion shall be ploughed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. And then you go straight on. No but, no and. That's something that's been supplied. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. No conditions. No condition of repentance no condition of faith, no conditions whatsoever are mentioned. It is just simply and abruptly God sovereignly, sovereignly achieving his own purpose and fulfilling his own will. It's as simple as that. When we begin to see that, we begin to understand something that adequately, adequately uh, describes the book of Micah where sin did abound grace did much more abound you remember that of course was what Paul said in Romans 5 and verse 20 but you could write that over the book of Micah where sin did abound grace did much more abound that's the heart of Micah's message here the sin Here there's grace. Is there any connection between sin and grace? Does grace evolve out of sin? Is sin a a cause and grace an effect? No. You cannot say that. God does not have to show mercy to the sinner. God does not have to be gracious because we are sinful. Because we continue in sin, God does not have to cause his grace to abound. There's no connection, you see. But just because of what God is, just because God is grace, see, on the one side you have the very darkness of sin and on the other side you have the very light of grace. You can't explain it and it, and it, and it took the Holy Spirit uh, through a man like Micah to present to us the unbelievable nature of God's grace. Please, just go away. And if there's nothing else you remember, just remember this phrase, the unbelievable nature of God's grace, because it is almost unbelievable. As I trust, we shall see as we go on. You see, it seems to me that Micah anticipates Romans 5 Um, from verse 12 to um, verse 21. I've always thought this is the most wonderful passage in God's God's Word, the fifth chapter of Romans, chapter 12. We can't read it all, but, you know, if if you look at it now, I think you will recall the contents of this paragraph in the Roman letter. There's nothing there about human responsibility. There's no question there about human faithfulness or a human response even. It's all the Lord. One man failed, one man got through. One man collapsed, the other man succeeded. Because this man sinned, death came upon all. Because this man got through, life is offered to all. It's amazing. And this is just like the book of Micah. The whole accent is upon God's sovereign grace. God himself coming out to us. God himself becoming the saviour. God himself, as it were, um, making provision for us. Not because of anything we deserve or not because, in fact, of of our response. Because you see, here is the glory of God's grace. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that's the thing that most of us forget. We've been so brought up to put an accent upon our response that we forget that in fact the first thing was God's grace. By grace, God says, ye are saved through faith. Faith comes next, not first. By grace are ye saved through faith. And this is is the little book of Micah. You see, he first loved us. Herein is love, not that we loved God, or that there was an inkling of love in us for God, or an inkling of a desire for God. No, herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And so when you read through this Romans 5 from verse 12 to 21, what a wonderful thing, what a wonderful uh, revelation it is of the grace of God working on the behalf of sinful man. Not not in a woolly way, not in a a silly way, but in a holy way, in a righteous way, in an absolutely just way, and yet an absolutely gracious way. You read through it. And you'll find that one of the words that occurs more than any other there in that little passage is grace. On the one side, sin. Sin and death. Two little words that come again and again like deep bass notes. And then you get these other beautiful notes coming in all the way there. Grace and life. Because grace and life are linked as sin and death are linked. Sin results in death. Grace results. And I think one of the things we first have to get hold of before we can go any further in an understanding of God's grace is that it is not in any way connected with our responsiveness, with our faithfulness, or with anything that is in us. The first thing we have got to understand about the grace of God is that it is absolutely within his his own prerogative to exercise. Oh, do get hold of it, first and foremost. That we need to appropriate it, we all know. That we've got to exercise faith, we all know. But God has moved on the behalf of every sinful man and woman, whether they accept it or whether they do not accept it. God has moved on behalf of all in grace. He did not exercise any more grace for Lance Lambert because he knew he would accept than he did for Hitler, whom he knew would not accept. He went forward in grace for every single man and woman. And that's the thing you and I have got to get hold of this evening. You see, we need to understand what God's grace means. It seems fashionable today To understand grace as a kind of woolly sentiment, a woolly sentiment that old gentlemen sort of croon about, or that belongs to the mother's union. A kind of idea that, that God sidesteps on the issue of sin, that's the idea behind it. That when, when the issue of sin challenges God, when it comes up in God's eyes, he sidesteps and says, well, look here, we'll forget about that. Okay? We'll forget about that. We, 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 won't, we won't take account of that. I'm God. I don't have to. That's grace. I can overlook it, if I wish to. It is this idea of grace that has undermined more Christians than any other thing, any other error. And there are many of us in this room tonight who still, though we know the Lord, have got this this woolly idea of the grace of God. An idea that somehow or other God has has just sort of overlooked it. It's there, but he's sort of chosen to turn his back on it and and, uh, pretend it's not there oh what a lie what a terrible lie it is as if god has turned his back on something and pretending that it's not there when it's there all the time it's a lie terrible lie and sooner or later if you and i believe that kind of grace you and i will be in sticky waters we'll be in tr- trouble uh, in trouble spiritually. Because if God can turn his back upon it when it's there all the time, it's not really been settled, he can just as easily turn back to it and have a good look at it. And that's what happens to some Christians. God's turned back and looking again, changing his mind, deciding perhaps that he ought to withdraw his salvation. Eh? The idea that some people have, if they've got an erroneous idea of the grace of God, because, you see, Micah reveals to us that sin and failure, far from being overlooked, are in fact accounted for by God, recorded by God, and even defined carefully by God. Far from, from sort of drawing back and saying, no, I won't look at it. God accounts for it every single bit of sin if you like, records it and um, defines it. The failure of rulers, prophets, priests as well as people is underlined in this little book in the most solemn and intense language. Um, That's why some people have found the book so heavy. Because Micah's not afraid. Micah's theme is grace. But you see, that's the whole point about grace. Grace is not afraid to look at sin. God's grace, far from from sort of gathering its skirts around it and running away from sin and pretending it's not there, oh, let's forget it, let's overlook it. God's grace looks at sin boldly. It sees exactly what it's facing. It understands just what its nature is far more than any of you do, or I. God's grace has looked into the nature of sin, seen it in all its foul and vile and horrible nature, and knows its destiny, knows its end. Oh, it's the mercy of God that the Holy Spirit doesn't define define to us sin as deeply as he could. he doesn't expose as terribly as the Holy Spirit could what sin really is. Now this little book is not afraid it, it, it's all there in black and white if you wish to if you wish to explore this book it's there. Everything is taken into account. For God's grace is founded upon his righteousness and upon his justice and upon his holiness. And that's the glory of God's grace. That's why in the end, the prophet Micah says, who is a God like unto thee? It's not simply that he's, as some people have understood from those verses, God says, I'm pardoning you. I'm passing over uh, the rest of your sin. I'm going to forget it. Oh no, the thing that's brought out this spontaneous cry of wandering praise in Micah is the fact that he's seen something, and what he's seen is this. God's grace grows out of God's holiness. They're not divided. It grows out of God's justice, out of God's righteousness, out of God's holiness, so that the the Apostle John could say of the Lord Jesus we beheld him full of grace and truth not full of grace and love full of grace and truth and so that little word of the psalmist is is to mercy and righteousness they've kissed each other they're wedded they belong to each other and you know when you and i see that we begin to understand a little more of the wonderful nature of God's grace. Why are our times of praise not absolutely riotous? Why are our times of praise not absolutely overflowing with worship? Because you and I haven't seen either the nature of sin or the nature of grace. If there was one person who began really to see what grace was, you couldn't stop it. You'd walk round in a daze. As some of us did when we were first saved. Who is a God like you? Who, who's like the Lord? You see the nature of God's grace. That's the wonder of it, you see. That's the wonder of it. That God's grace is based on his justice and his righteousness and his holiness. But just wait, just wait. And here's the, here's the key, here's the kernel of it. Not, but not the righteousness or justice or holiness of you and me but the righteousness and holiness and justice of Christ. Isn't that wonderful? God's grace is built on righteousness but it's the righteousness of Christ. God's grace springs out of holiness but it's the holiness of Christ. Do you see? That's where you come when you come to this wonderful book of Micah. You see, the book of Micah, it just, just when sin and failure have been exposed and judgment's been declared in those chapter, those first three chapters, and you just begin to think there's no hope. There's no hope. Everything's in ruins. God's rising up now in tremendous wrath to destroy it all. Just when you think the end has come, suddenly Micah bursts into a song of praise. And what is his song of praise? It's got no connection with the preceding chapters, seemingly. His song of praise is all about the God's purpose being fulfilled. And you scratch your head. No wonder some liberal uh, scholars have just felt that this book is a mess. <laughs> that, it, it, that it couldn't, that chapter 4 or 5 could couldn't have been written by the same man who wrote chapters 1, 2 and 3. It couldn't have been written by the same man the, the point is you see Micah's, Micah's seen something and he's just burst into, into worship again and it's all this time it's all about the fulfilled purpose of God, God is going to completely fulfill his um, intention, his, his will and it's only then and only then that Michael reveals the one through whom and upon whom that purpose is going to be fulfilled and is going to be achieved. And to me, that is the the reason why I believe that this book has been arranged carefully. These prophecies may date from different periods of Michael's life, but they've been very carefully arranged for (laughs) maximum of effect the maximum of effect. You see, it's just wonderful when you suddenly you suddenly realize in spite of all this sin, in spite of all this failure, in spite of this judgments being declared, suddenly you see, God's going to have everything he set out to to achieve. He's going to fulfill his purpose. His house is going to be built. And it's going to be a center of worship and praise and salvation to the ends of the earth, you see? Well then you think, well how? How? How's God going to do this? Only then does uh, that, that, Micah unveil the Messiah out of Bethlehem a father. Hmm? He's achieved the maximum of effect. Suddenly, when you and I, well, how can God do this? Has God forgotten uh, what he said about judgment? Is God just going to overlook sin and uh, willy-nilly? How's, no. Suddenly, here's the one upon whom God bases everything. The key to all, it's the Messiah, it's Christ. You see, it's a revelation of the sovereign grace of God in Christ. Oh, just wait. It is a revelation of the sovereign grace of God. No, the sovereign grace of God in Christ. It's as New Testament in character as that. This book clearly defines the one in whom and through whom God's sovereign grace is expressed and declared to all sinful men and women. The most wonderful commentary on this part of the um, book of Micah is again in another part of the Bible. It's in Isaiah 59. I'm not going to read the whole lot again, and I leave it with you to read. Isaiah 59, from verse 15 to verse 21. I shall just read the first part. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. That's the book of Micah. And he saw that there was no man. That's the book of Micah. Ruler, prophet, priest, people, all out, all vetoed. Then listen. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore his own arm brought salvation unto him, and his righteousness it upheld him. And then verse 20, And a Redeemer will come to Zion, and unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. That's a commentary on the book of of Micah. And It's been running through my head now for a whole week therefore his own arm brought salvation was oh, isn't that wonderful therefore his own arm brought salvation how what a revelation of god's grace is contained in that little little phrase god had no need to bring salvation to us there was no man there was no intercessor there was no justice everything had clean gone but you see God's reactions are different to ours. We would have said, let them sink. Let them go. That's what we would have said. If they are as rotten as that, if they are as uninterested as that, if they are as indifferent as that, let them go. They're not worth it. But God's reactions are different. And that reveals grace. What is grace? It's just the reaction of God to sin. The reaction of God to transgression. It says that when the Lord saw that, therefore, his own arm brought salvation. Oh, what a therefore. What a therefore. Why should they be a therefore? Therefore, his own arm brought salvation. I think it's wonderful. That's the book of Micah. Well, we can go on and on, just finding in the scripture uh, commentaries on the book of, um, of Micah and in other parts of God's word. But you see, it is by this one, by the Lord Jesus, God can save. Why can he save? Because this one bore the judgment upon our sin. That's why. This one out of Bethlehem, Ephrata. He was the one brought forward to bear our sins and you see the whole glory of this is that the sin issue has not been sidestepped oh no it's been accounted for and put away accounted for and put away by whom by God because of Christ that's why and by Christ God not only saves us, he that is Christ in the grace of God is the ground of not only our salvation, but of our transformation, and of our service, and of our continuance, and of our ultimate glory. Do you believe that? Oh well, if you don't, I can leave you to experience. Because you'll either go out, or you'll go through. And if you go through, it'll be be because you discover God's grace. And only because you discover God's grace. God has made Christ the Messiah, as we discover him in the book of Micah. The basis, not just of salvation, all salvation's a wonderful thing, it's a great salvation, but listen, God has made... Christ in his grace, the ground for transformation. Do you think your transformation is going to be effected simply because you're um, trying to do your best? Because you're struggling? Because you're striving? No. The Lord certainly requires our cooperation, but even with our cooperation, it's still grace that transforms us. God doesn't change you and me because of anything in us. He changes us because of what's in his Son. If you and I are going to continue, it's going to be great, the grace of God in Christ, that we can continue. Some people seem to think God accepts them on the basis of Christ when they first come to him, and then from then on accepts them on the basis of what they are. What a, what a terrible position to be in. No wonder some of us can't praise or pray or take part or contribute or do anything but sit with our heads bowed. Of course because you see we've not discovered that the god's ground for continuance is christ it's the only way that god will get me through and service so some people seem to think that service is based on blessing or upon a sense of life or upon something else they feel that uh, as long as they've got the blessing as long as they've got the life they'll they'll serve the lord but no not if not that's not God's ground or basis for service. Christ is the basis and um, We've got nothing else to bring in our hands, but what is of Christ? He's everything. He's the lamb. He's the first fruits. He's everything else we can bring into the house. It's Christ. We can only take what is of Christ and offer it. That's grace. Grace not only saves us. The grace of God not only saves us. The grace of God provides for us, that provides for all our requirements in the service of God. Oh, we can go on, because in the end, when you and I are in glory, we shall see far more, more, more clearly than ever we have down here, how great the grace of God in Christ has been the basis for getting us there. If we are there, it will be because of the grace of God, and nothing less and nothing more than that. What do you think it means when it says in that little word, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb? Is, is that striving on there? But Not at all. By the word of their testimony. Their testimony to what? To what good people they were? Never. The, the word of their testimony to what he is. And loving not their lives unto the death. Whose death? The death of Christ. It's all grace. No wonder they sing about the Lamb. Uh, in the glory because you see there's there's nothing else to talk about nothing else to talk about no one will get there and start talking about how they got there or what they did or didn't no the language is all the talk is all about the lamb and how he did it and how he got us through and how he provided and how finally we're there do you think that we shall be up there in heaven one day and Abraham will come to us and say I did rather well didn't I I did rather well. I got through. And someone else will come from another court and say, you know, I struggled so hard, isn't it, Margs? I'm here, I'm here. I, 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 uh, I just, I was nearly gone I was, but I just took hold and, and now I'm here. And someone else will come and say, I got in, I got in, you know, I, I prayed twice a day. If I hadn't done that, I wouldn't be here. No, no, no. When we're there, it'll all be something very different to that. There'll not be a person who doesn't, who doesn't. And point to the lamb as the means by which they're there not only initially but forever he's all the glory of Emmanuel's land you see when God when God really acts like this it's wonderful because you see when God forgives he forgets we've said a little bit about this last week when God deals with our sin it's blotted out it's blotted out it's eradicated it's removed it's just not there it's just not there God's not turning his back upon something and saying I just won't look I just won't look God can look it's not there that's the wonder of it now do you understand God's grace God can look and say where is their sin where is it it's gone it's not there. Far as the east from the west, where's that? You'll never find it. And he doesn't say, just for us, but for God. God was trying in figurative language to say to you, look here, if I look for the far as the east, the west, I can't find it. Gone. Just gone. Gone. Well, how can it have Gone. God must have uh, uh, sort of uh, just somehow or other uh, uh, tried to, to forget. No, the very record of our sin has been eradicated. And that, now listen, legally and righteously. And that's the wonder of God's grace. It's been done legally, not in any court of this earth. No, in the court of heaven. Legally it's been settled for ever and forever ever and forever. ever and when God eradicates sin it's gone ratified by the judge of all judges it's gone it's finished with never to be remembered again well if you don't call that grace I should like to hear something that is grace because I think it would be a wonderful thing if God just said about sin I'll just overlook it I'll just pretend it's not there. That's a, a fashionable modern preaching, it seems today. That would be wonderful enough, and many people seem to live their Christian lives rejoicing over that. But I'm far more full of praise for this: that God has legally eradicated my sin. So legally has He in fact done it that it can never be brought up. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? God that justifies. That doesn't just mean that God, being God, can therefore justify me uh, sort of uh, capriciously. No, no, no. It just means this. God himself has legally justified me. Who else can do that job? Who can do it? We see now oh, this, really, when we see it like the a, a tremendous encouragement to us, because, as I said, I believe again last week, that every single dispensation, bar one, has ended in failure, but has been concluded in grace. And I think that this dispensation is no exception. It's ending in failure, but it'll be concluded in grace, by grace. And to another prophet, Zechariah, um, it was revealed, as I think again I might have mentioned last week, that the top stone shall be brought forth with shouts of grace, grace unto it. I'm so interested that it does not say the top stones shall be brought forward with murmurs of grace, grace unto it, as if everyone's not very sure, or whispers of grace. Grace, or, or cries of grace. Good. No, everyone will be so convinced that only the grace of God could terminate this dispensation in glory that when they see that top stone go into place everyone will involuntarily and spontaneously cry grace, grace. That's all. Just Nothing else could have finished this dispensation. Oh, well, some of you probably don't understand what I'm talking about. But if you look at this dispensation, if you look at the church, look at God's uh, purpose, well, uh, do you not think it's impossible? I'm sure you do, by judging by the number of you come to pray. I'm sure you just think it's absolutely impossible. There's not much good praying about it. What could happen anyway? Really, just by... It's impossible but you know it's going to happen, because of God's grace, and you and I, we shall not just stand there, sort of waiting to shout grace, oh no, when it happens, you and I will be on our faces, we just, out of our lips, there'll be a cry of Well, I do hope that that has been some help to you, this key to this book. You see, uh, when we begin to understand Micah's message, we are brought with him quite spontaneously to cry, Who is a God like unto thee, who pardoneth iniquity? This isn't a God who just tries to overlook things, who tries to get round it because he loves us. Oh, no. This is a God who's looked at our sin, accounted for it, recorded it, dealt with it, put it away, forgiven us, and accepted us forever. Who is a God like unto thee? Well, now, when we look um, at the um, uh, outline of this book, if you would like to take your Bibles now and just turn the last moments, we will very, very swiftly move through this. I wonder whether I could have that door open, uh, unless it will be too drafty for an... Um, you see here, we've put up here. This is the there the, 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 the is a three-fold outline to the Book of Micah. The first is very simply the proclamation of coming judgment, Micah's oh, chapters one, two, and three, and the second is the purpose of God to be realised through His grace alone. Micah chapter 4 and chapter 5 that is divided into two the first is God's purpose to be achieved in spite of his people that's uh, chapter 4 verse 1 to chapter 5 verse 1 and secondly God's purpose to be achieved because of Christ chapter 5 from verse 2 to 15 and lastly God's controversy with his people and his solution, chapters 6 and 7. Now, let's just look at um, these chapters. First of all, the first section, the first three chapters. Two things we ought to note about it before we actually look at the verses. One is that this is the background of all that Micah really has to say to us. In other words, this great proclamation of judgment, this looking into the question of sin, And the failure of the whole nation, the whole people of God, uh, is in fact only uh, background, or very necessary background, uh, to what God really wants to say. And secondly, you'll notice in verse 2 that all the peoples of the earth are invited to take note. In other words, what God is doing with Judah and Israel, all the other nations are to take note because something's being thrashed out here for their benefit. Now, I have divided this into four. The first is the proclamation of wrath to come. Um, That is from chapter 1, verse 2, to verse 16. Professor Ellison has called this... um, Part of this chapter especially from verse 10 to verse 16 verbal fireworks because this is the tremendous um, outburst of Micah with his great play on words when he takes cities that are all in his district uh, which have a meaning and says weep not weep town bulk not bulk town and so on and so on it's really some verbal fireworks which were evidently meant to catch the ear of the people and make them um, sit up. It's a, it's a proclamation of, of God's anger, and God's wrath. And let us note this, that the grace of God does not mean that God has no anger. The wonder, wonderful thing about it is this, God can be very, very, very angry indeed about the, our sin and still Still, meet us in grace. It says, um, I hid my face from thee in a moment in my anger, but with everlasting mercies will I gather thee. We have to remember that. And then a second thing about this is the exposure of all unrighteousness. You'll get a very, very um, interesting exposure in uh, these chapters of unrighteousness. And what is unrighteousness? Well and it covers a lot of things but one thing that um, Micah touches on a lot is social injustice and you'll find it in verse 2 and chapter, um, chapter 2 and verse 2 they cover fields and seize them and houses and take them away they oppress a man and his house a man and his inheritance verse 8 they, they strip the robe from the peaceful from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war The women of my people, you drive out from their pleasant houses. From their young children, you take away my glory forever. Social injustice. There's a lot in Scripture, you know, in the New Testament about social injustice. About our relationship to others. Our social relationships. And it's in that realm that injustice takes rise. Now do remember this. There's a lot in Scripture... For those of us who have responsibility for other human beings, awful lot, parents for children, employers for employees, and so we could go on, husbands for wives, and so on. All who have any kind of responsibility for other human beings, there's a tremendous amount of... Unrighteousness is when we are failing completely in our responsibilities in these directions. We can go on a lot more along that line. But you see, there is a lot about social injustice. And one of the things the world always notes about Christians is whether they are really just when it comes to it. And many of us just are not. In the small things we're often found out. And then again, spiritual carelessness. This is very interesting. Chapter 2, verse 6. Listen to this. Sounds almost like commentary on some people today. Do not preach. Thus they preach. One should not preach such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Very, very modern, isn't it? Uh, Verse 11. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be a preacher for this people. And then again in chapter 3 and verse 11, last part. Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No evil shall come upon us. These spiritual carelessness. This is how many of We can rest upon um, what has happened in our lives in a wrong way. Can sort of just pretend and say, Oh, no, 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 no. The Lord wouldn't do that. He wouldn't do the other. But the spiritual carelessness. And then, of course, there's worldly compromise. Chapter 1, verse 13. It speaks about harnessing the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. You were the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion. Now this is very interesting. Unless you know a little bit of what lies behind that verse, it just doesn't mean a lot. But you see, Lakish, which was one of the big um, towns you came up from Egypt, was the last resting place of the horses and chariots brought up from Egypt Mm -hmm. to be sold in the land. They were like the, um, the ancient equivalent of our tanks. And they used to rest the horses and the men at Lachish. You see? It was a great centre of this trade coming up from Egypt. And all the prophets, with one voice, are very much against this. Why are they against it? Because it was worldly compromise. You see, the people of God were putting their trust in horses and chariots, and not in the Lord. They thought, if we only have um, a horse and chariot, deterrent, we shall not be attacked by Assyria, or by Egypt, or by Israel, or by other nations, you see. And uh, it was just simply, they got their trust in the wrong place. That's worldly compromise. I don't know where you've got your trust. Perhaps it's in your job. Perhaps it's in your income. Perhaps it's in your husband. I don't know, some of them might be in your wife. I don't know where your trust is. But you see, we can all put our trust in something other than the Lord. And as soon as that happens, it's the beginning of sin to you. It's the start of a collapse. Where you put your... T- and sometimes, you know, the Lord has to bring us tumbling down. Just puts his fingers and brings us tumbling down to his feet. Again. <coughs> we've put, we've not put persons down. Now just remember that. There's three things about unrighteousness, particularly, that... Um, Uh, Micah says, in exposing sin. Then in chapter 3, and from verse 1 to verse 12, we have the failure of rulers, prophets, and priests. That was a most wonderful chapter. Slowly Micah goes through, beginning with the rulers, going on to the prophets, ending with the priests. He has the least to say about the priests, which is a very interesting thing, because on the whole, the the priesthood in the day of uh, Micah was not quite so bad. Very interesting side um, line. Um, but what we're, we're just trying to say is there's a failure. Now, you will know that the administration of the, of the whole nation was bound up with three classes of people. First, the ruler, secondly, the prophets, and thirdly, the priests. And they'd all failed. All had miserably failed. And this is the point that, that Micah brings out. Why had they failed? Because they were out for personal gain and personal aggrandizement. You know that's a fitting description of Christian things today. So much of Christian work, there's just personal ambitions got into it, personal gain, professionalism, has somehow or another made its inroads into Christendom. See? It's the same thing. We had its ugly head again, and you see, there's no real service. Because uh, service is character. Remember that. You see, God's whole point about the ruler was, they've got a character. You don't just make a person a ruler, an elder, a king, a prince. God's thought was there should be a character. And that's the whole point of Saul and David. One was no good. And the other was God's man so you can go on you see god is after a kind of character he doesn't just want prophets he doesn't just want priests he doesn't just want rulers he wants a kind of character well so much for that and then again in this section we have the glory of israel in Adullam. now this is very very interesting chapter 1 and verse 15 the last part the glory of israel shall come to Adullam. Now, isn't that interesting? Then uh, compare that with chapter 2, verse 12. The only ray of hope in this dark, in these dark three chapters. I will surely gather all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. That's a description of Adonam. He who opens the breach will go up before them. They will break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king will pass on before them, the Lord at their head. Now, those of you who know your your scriptural history will know all about Adullam. Remember when the days were so dark and so terrible, everyone who had a debt, everyone who was discontented, went to Adullam and hid themselves in the cave. And who was in the cave? The king. Now, is it coincidence that a little bit farther on it says, but thou Bethlehem Ephrata. David, you know, came from Bethlehem Ephrata. And David is the one who's associated with the Dullam. Don't you think that this chapter, with its dark overtones, or undertones, if you like, of judgment, um, the Lord is trying to say to us, in those days, every single one, who wants the glory of the Lord, will be found in a Adullam, pressed together to their king. And there, in that dark hole, God will, f- will form an army and an administration and a kingdom that will come to the third. It is most interesting that in this book, these three chapters of Judgment, Adullam, the glory of Israel, will come to Adullam. It's the promise of Micah. As it happened before, it's going to happen again. Do you know, we are living in days just like that, when the judgment of God overhangs everything. Christendom, yes, that that, that awful harlot that's going to be judged in the end. And that other thing that we call Babylon. All things going to go down, but... You know that there are those who fear, as Malachi says, who fear the Lord and they'll speak off another. They're forced together and there the Lord's forming something that's going to come out on top in the end. We have to leave that. It's a glimmer of hope. And then the second section is the purpose of God to be realized through his grace alone. Um, We've already remarked on the abruptness of the transition from chapters 1, 2, and 3 to chapters 4 and 5. The but, of those of you who've got an authorised version or a revised version or American standard version, will notice but or and. But in fact, that but or and has no force, and none of the recent translations have included it. All of them have begun, have cut out uh, the and or the but. Altogether, because it has no real force. And that's all the more remarkable because it, it makes you realise how um, suddenly Micah comes in with this revelation of the, of the fulfilled purpose of God. And then I also just want to um, again just mention to you the way the prophecies here are presented. Um, we, we would have put the contents of chapter 5 first and made chapter 4, chapter 5, and chapter 5, chapter 4. It, don't you think that's what you would have done if you'd been writing this? You'd say, well now, now, just wait, let's give it logically. First sin. Next judgment. Now, what's the next oh, Of course, Christ. Before we can talk about the grace of God, Christ. But the Holy Spirit has put first to, to as it moment, just amaze us. The purpose of God fulfilled. And then, Christ rather remarkable it has as i've already said the maximum effect we are led from micah one to three to micah four we're in wonder. we just can't understand what's happening but when we've got to chapter five we're lost <laughs> amazement in true wonder well now firstly we've got here god's purpose in spite of his hope. in chapter four let's just look at it and this is a wonderful chapter we read it um this evening because it reveals the sovereign grace of God performing his purpose. You see, it's got no connection with anything that proceeds. It doesn't say if the people repent, if they uh, exercise faith, if they return. No, not any of it at all. It's the sovereign grace of God performing his will, almost and seemingly apart from man. Just doing it. Doing it. Now, you know, that's exactly what God has done with Christ. Apart from yes. us, altogether, together, God has got everything in Christ. Someone said to me the other day about that ark that went on ahead and said that Mr Sparks always used to, say, always used to call that the loneliness of Christ. Because he, he went on ahead when not one of us could go. And truly he did it in this way here. And then when you come to um, this chapter, it's a symphony of promises. Look at those verses, just, just for example ver, from verse 1 to verse 4, there are 13 shells. as if God is absolutely Hammering home, blow after blow, as it were, note after note, trying to get home to us. He's going to do this. How can we possibly have any uncertainty uh, after God has said this? It's a symphony of promises, this chapter. And what is the purpose of God that he is achieving? Well, it's here. The mountain of the Lord's house as a a worldwide centre to which all the nations shall come, come into a knowledge of God's salvation. Come into a knowledge of God's justice and holiness. And into a a knowledge of God's grace. What is the result of grace? Verse 5. We will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. You know that's a very wonderful phrase. That's grace. God allowing sinful, unworthy people such as we, to walk in his name. You know what that means, don't you? We take upon him, upon us, his name. When you marry someone, you take their name. You lose what we call your maiden name, and you take your husband's name. We will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever, not for just time, but forever and forever. That's grace. God, in all his loveliness and righteousness, conferring upon us all that he has when we are not in any way uh, worthy of it. It speaks here also in this last part of the chapter of the lame and the afflicted and the dispersed being brought back uh, uh, again to to walk in, in that name. And then again, a rather wonderful thing... God says here, in this, to do with his grace, that he's going to make Babylon, he's going to make the exile, a kind of spiritual womb. Which is, as it were, in which he's going to bring forth something out of his people. You read that last part of the chapter um, from verse 9 of chapter 4 to verse 1 of chapter 5 you will discover it the Lord's plan and the Lord's thoughts in verse 12 isn't that wonderful here's Babylon and it looks as if Babylon's almighty and here's Zion it looks as if Zion's crushed. but although it is in judgment that Zion is crushed, God in grace is going to make Zion in Babylon to travel that you may bring forth, by this God's purpose, is going to be fulfilled. Here you have grace. Well, that's that section. Written right (coughs) over it is this, that God's purpose is going to be achieved in spite of his people. They may be going to be even when God finally purges them in Babylon. He's going to, he's not just going to let it be a purging, he's going to make it creative. That, that only a God of Grace can do that. Sometimes God has to deal with us very severely, but you know when we take it, when we accept it, God turns those severe dealings from just being purgative. He turns them into something creative, so that when we look back finally, we really cannot distinguish what. Was uh, the Lord's permissive will, as we sometimes call it, and what was His absolute will? If there indeed is two uh, distinct uh, wills of God, and then uh, there is the God, that God's purpose achieved because of Christ, and really this is the heart of the whole book and the most wonderful um, passage of all. You see, here you've got the most un- amazing unveiling of the Messiah. Um, in verse 2 But you, O Bethlehem Ephrata, who are little to be among the clans of Judah from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel whose goings forth are from of old Now note in the unveiling of the Messiah there are two things we've got to look for Now just pretend you were all good Jews pretend you've forgotten all about the New Testament Two things Micah tells us we've got to look for One, he is to be human he must come from Bethlehem father But secondly, we're told the most remarkable thing about him. We're told that his goings are from of old. His goings forth or comings forth. And the word is not coming forth, but comings forth. That you can't escape the Im- implication. It is that this one who's coming is God. He has always been coming forth. Again and again, revealing himself to his people, whose comings forth are of old. The actual word uh, here, um, from you shall come forth, is exactly the same Hebrew verb that is used later on, whose goings forth are from of old. They're the same word. And that's very, very interesting again. On the one side you've got his humanity, on the other side you've got his deity. And then you've got Christ revealed here as the basis of God's grace. He is the key to everything revealed as the key to everything. Christ as prophet, Christ as priest, Christ as king. In the nation, prophet, priest and king have failed. Now Christ is presented as prophet, priest and king. You look through this chapter, you'll find here by implication, he is all these three things in this chapter. He is not only ruler coming out of Bethlehem, but he shall stand and feed in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And then again, you've got it, true service in Christ. Uh, when you look at Christ, there's truth. He's not just king, born king. He is king by nature. He's not just a prophet by appointment. He is a prophet by nature. He's not just a priest. Because he's been appointed to be a priest. He is a priest by nature. That's the wonderful thing about Christ. Christ reveals to us the real service. Oh, this awful thing amongst uh, so many of God's children. This kind of service which is all just a sham. Hollow shell. It's all just a thing we carry through and we think we're something. We've got an air about us and a a kind of manner and everything else. It's, It's all carried. But you see, Christ reveals to us true service. Not afraid to cry. Not afraid to wash people's feet. Not afraid to be with publicans and sinners. Not afraid to cross over taboos. He's he's just true. Absolutely true. And this one is called sun over God's house. The mountain of the house of the Lord. Later in Hebrews we're told he's set as sun over God's house and then another wonderful thing that I particularly found a great blessing to myself what is grace listen we will walk in the name of the Lord our God but listen to Christ he shall stand and feed his flock in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God he's going to do it in the name of the Lord we will walk in the name of the Lord we're together in the name of of the Lord. That's grace, isn't it? Bringing Christ and us together in the one name of the Lord, our God. Well, I can only just simply leave um, these things with you uh, and uh, trust that um, you'll follow them up yourselves as we look through this outline. And um, Then again, another thing in, in verse um, 5, this man shall be our peace. That's grace. He is the guarantee of final victory. See, it speaks of the Assyrian. When the Assyrian shall come in, this man shall be our peace. Now, you and I will never know victory if we've got no peace. Because peace is the evidence that there is no sin. When there is sin, there is restlessness, emptiness, a vacuum. We become open to the enemy. It gets advantage. But peace, as soon as we know the Lord is our peace, he, the peace of God which passes all understanding, it garrisons our heart and mind. That's what we need. Why do you why are you and I always being knocked off balance? Because you, we haven't got that peace garrisoning us. This man shall be our peace. If we will only walk in his in the name of the Lord our God, we shall know the, this man is our peace. At all times, in all situations. It is true. And that's the guarantee of victory. When the Assyrians shall come, this man shall be our peace. Some people feel it shouldn't be like that, you see. They feel that this man should be our peace, should be connected with the preceding verses. And some others say, no, this phrase should be connected with the succeeding verses. But in fact, it's the two, it links the two together, you see. This wonderful one who's going to stand and feed us is also going to be our peace when the Assyrian comes when we know the conflict when we know the battle and then here's a wonderful thing perhaps some will think this is fanciful look at verse 5 the last part of it when the Assyrian comes into our land treads upon our so- soil that we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men i right, had a few of the scholars have said well this 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 is one of the strangest prophecies of all, but you know I've got a strong, I may be fanciful, I've got a strong feeling it refers to the Lord. Who is the Shepherd of Shepherds? Who is the Shepherd of Shepherds? The Lord. That figure seven speaks of completeness, doesn't it? And that and that other wonderful figure eight speaks of resurrection of something new. Here you've got the Lord given. As our shepherd so completely our shepherd there's no need that you and i have that he cannot meet and given to us as our king not only now but forever and i've got a feeling that's it who 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 wants someone like that when you can find him in the Lord. this man's our peace now am i right well if you look in uh, that verse six you will notice a very strange thing it speaks of they verse 6, they shall rule the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod with the drawn sword and he shall deliver us. And in the American Standard revision, they have, the Revised Standard version, they have put back they. They said it must be a copy of Sarah. But they have put in a footnote, the Hebrew says he. I think that they is he. They. Symbolic presentation of Christ as the one who is able, and one last thing about this Christ being them um, because of Christ, uh, God's purpose is going to be achieved. Do you not see the contrast between, on the one side, Babylon and Assyria, and on the other side, Bethlehem? On the one side, you've got proud, arrogant, cruel Babylon and Syria and on the other side, you've got little, humble insignificant Bethlehem. Who has, which, sorry, which has governed history? Which has governed history? Where's Babylon? Bethlehem has finally governed history. That's a really wonderful thing. It has not only governed history, it will continue to govern. Well, lastly, the last section, the last two chapters, God's controversy with his people and his solution. In this uh, last part, Micah brings now the lessons of the former two sections together. If anything, the section on judgment in this part is more, even more severe than in Micah 1 to 3. The great question of God in chapter 6 from verse 3 to verse 5 is twofold, really. He says, why... Uh, In what have I wearied you? That's his... I'm sorry, I said twofold, and I I didn't mean that. Um, He says, what have I done to you, and in what have I wearied you? That's the question of God. And I think it's a question God asks of you and me as well. What have I done to you that you treat me in the way you do? In what way have I wearied you? And then there are two things that God says. One is, he says, I've redeemed you from... I've taken you out of the land of Egypt. And the second is, i brought you into the promised land. In verse um, 4, I brought you up from the land of Egypt. And then he says, remember what happened in verse 5, from Shittim to Gilgal. That was the crossing over of the Jordan. On the one hand, he's delivered us from sin and this world and its destiny. And on the other hand, he's delivered us into what he is and into his purpose And into a destiny. So God says, in what have I done to you? This is what I've done to you. In what have I wearied you? I have taken you away from bondage, he says, restlessness, and brought you into a land of perfect rest. In what what way have I wearied you? That's God's question. The second thing God says, and this is very interesting, in verse 6 to verse 8, is his requirement. He says, have I, have I, in fact, required of you something above you? Huh. Many of us feel that. So there are three things God says he is required of us. Righteousness. Uh, let me put it another way, just in case it, people say straight away, oh, I couldn't justness. We not say justice, we'll say justness. Righteousness. Steadfast love and humility. Those are the three things God requires. God says, is that too much to expect of you? Justness in everything. Fairness. Righteousness. Steadfast love. That tender, patient, persevering love. And humility. The point is, these are the three things we would require of anyone else. We say it's too much it's rubbish. That's the simple element. Element <laughs> God requires. Utter simplicity. And it's the thing that any of us will require of anyone else. Justness. Steadfast love. Humility. Then God goes on again, judgments declared in from the rest of those verses un, until um, chapter 7 and verse 6, uh, even more severely. Till again you're brought to the place where you feel there's no hope at all. And then from verse 8, you have God's infinite grace as the solution. God's infinite grace as the solution. Listen to the lo- lovely cry of Micah. The cry of faith, verse 7. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until, now listen, he pleads my cause. That's grace. Until... He pleads Michael's no reason for him to do it. That's grace. And executes judgment for me. He will bring me forth to the light, and I shall behold his deliverance. Well, then it talks about his enemy being under his feet. That's grace. Now when Michael speaks, he doesn't speak for himself, you know, he speaks for the nation. The nation's going to go into judgment. But here comes Michael, he says, I speak for the nation, just like Jeremiah spoke for the nation. Mm-hmm. And as later Habakkuk does, and he says here, I will wait. For what? The salvation of the Lord. That's grace. Not because there's anything in me. The Lord's going to plead my cause. That's very wonderful. And then in verse um, uh, 11, you've got a day decreed for the building of the walls. Did you know that was in the book of Micah? Verse 11, a day for the building of your walls. Now isn't that wonderful? After all those awful, dark, heavy words of judgment and exposure of sin, suddenly the prophet says, A day for the building of the wall. That's grace. God has decreed something. He's going to do it. We've been no need to fear. And then, infinite grace. Oh, I want to use that word, infinite grace. Where is infinite grace here? The last part of verse 17, listen. They shall fear because of thee. Now, do you not call that infinite grace? Well, of course, some of you may not. You may be too tired now to even um, uh, take it in. But you see, that infinite grace, because after all this list of crimes and sins and transgressions and everything else, Micah finally says, the nations shall all come to you. They'll come on their bellies. They'll come creeping to you. They'll fling themselves down upon their faces before you. And what will they... They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God and they shall fear because of thee. Because of thee. Infinite grace. God now is going to do something such a wonderful when we get to heaven in his unbelievable tenderness he will say to us you were instrumental. You were instrumental. We shall say no Lord of all you but he will say no. You were also instrumental. That's infinite grace. the In- grace. And so when you come to the last part of this, you see this final cry of worship, verse 7. Uh, chapter 7, verse 18 to verse 20. You see you've come this last wonderful thing, the grace of God pardoning her the grace of God passing over our sin. There's a lovely word passing over. It's the same word pass over as we use for the Passover. Passing over with all that wonderful thought of the blood of the Lamb. Pardoning. Passing over. And then there's subduing. He will tread out iniquities under his feet. Do we know anything of that? I wonder whether we do. His feet subduing and then his grace blotting them out nope. eradicated never to be remembered he will show faithfulness to Jacob that's the last word of uh, the prophet Micah and he and mercy to Abraham we would have said mercy to Jacob wouldn't we and uh, faithfulness to Abraham so that's more in keeping but no, yes just like the Lord, faithfulness to Jacob in spite of what he is Mercy to well, may the Lord help us to understand together the message of this wonderful book—that God is a God of of grace—and the unbelievable nature of His grace toward us. Something that you and I, as yet, have not really fully appreciated or understood. God has saved us, but He's not saved us in an easy way. No. God has saved us in such a way that he can look our sin right in the face and then eradicate it forever, never to be remembered. Why? Because the Messiah himself has become sin for us, who you knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. May the Lord help us.